Well, good morning, Restore. We are uh, wrapping up our series on resurrection. Um, if you're just now joining us this morning, my name's Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And we have been exploring over the last couple of weeks, really since Easter, uh, what resurrection is. Okay, so many of us, uh, if you're just now joining us for the series or you're kind of coming in mid-series, the question that I kind of want to put in our minds this morning is is this. Uh, As as Christians, we worship the risen Jesus. That's that's a foundational piece to our faith. Okay, so uh, we often say things like Jesus came and was sacrificed for our sins or paid the penalty for our sins. Okay, so this is built off of uh, an Old Testament model, and your Old Testament is that the portion of your Bible that was written before the time of Jesus, uh, but it was, it was basically when you would go to the temple uh, and offer a sacrifice for your sins, you would bring a pigeon or a dove or a goat or some kind of animal, you would bring them to the temple, uh, and you would sacrifice that animal to the, to the temple, to, at the temple or at the tabernacle in the presence of God, and your sins would be forgiven, right? That, like, your communion with God would be restored. Your communion with people would be restored. You would be forgiven, and you would go forth uh, as a forgiven person from the temple, okay? So, so that's where we get some of this, like, this is where God sacrificed, this is where Jesus paid or was sacrificed for your sins, But the question I want to ask this morning is, in all of those instances in your Old Testament, when you brought in an Old Testament sacrifice and you sacrificed it, none of those animals were ever required to be raised from the dead in order for you to be forgiven, right? Everyone's tracking with me so far? Animal was killed, blood sacrificed, penalty was paid, you were forgiven, you were restored, your communion with God has been made whole, that's it. Transaction over. None of those animals ever were raised from the dead. That resurrection never had any significance in in the context of your Old Testament or Old Testament sacrifices. So when we explore resurrection, we are looking at an entirely different and an entirely new thing, idea, that we don't see uh, before. And so the question I want to ask is when we say things like, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins— This is true. I'm not arguing that that's not true. Please don't hear me say anything I'm not saying this morning. But what I want to ask is, then why resurrection? If Jesus' sole purpose was to come and to die for your sins on the cross, then why was resurrection necessary? Why did resurrection happen at all? Why did Easter happen at all? And what your New Testament argues, what your New Testament writers are saying as they begin to try and wrestle with and interpret uh, what has happened is they begin to see the resurrection of Jesus uh, as a new creation. So, so in your Bible, God creates the heaven and earth uh, and everything in it in seven days, right? Days one through six are creation, and on day seven, he rests after saying it is finished, Right? And so what your New Testament writers begin to do is they begin to see resurrection as an act of new creation. It is this place in which we participate in the power of God who raised Jesus from the dead, who overcame death. 
And so because we participate in this life, this resurrected life with Jesus, there's a new joy, a new power, a new kind of liberation or restoration. This is how our church gets its name, restore, available to you through resurrection. There's actual power that goes beyond just being forgiven for your sins, just goes beyond just being let off the hook for the wrong things that you've done. And so we often see God's grace uh, kind of as passive, as more of it something that tolerates or puts up with us, right? So I, I'm, I'm a, I, I have sinned here, or I've got this addiction here, or I'm struggling here, and so God will, uh, will tolerate this, right? He will, he's going to let me off the hook because of his grace. It's sort of this thing that passively exists so that, like, he doesn't bring the hammer down on me when I ask for forgiveness. This is kind of how we view God's grace. But what resurrection uh, shares with us, like shows us, is there's actual real power, real life change, real restoration that is available to us, that is evident to us through the power of resurrection. And so Paul and your New Testament writers begin to see resurrection as this participatory like power that we actively get to partake in, that restores our sins, that not only just restores, like forgives our sins, but actually makes our hearts and our souls whole in the ways that led us to sin in the first place. The parts of our lives uh, that we remain suspicious of God over or defensive towards God over uh, begin to be healed or made whole. This idea that grace restores all things. That's how we got our name. It, it was from a Herman Baving. He's a Dutch theologian from about 60 years ago. You don't need to know who he is. Uh, but his entire work, his involumous work, could be summarized in grace restores all things. Resurrection is this power of active of grace, active in grace. It's not just, God, don't punish me for the wrong things I've done. It is this active participation in God's goodness. Through resurrection. And so this morning, uh, we're going to be in what is, I think, the premier uh, resurrection passage. It's in your New Testament. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's the longest verse, uh, longest chapter on resurrection. It's 58 verses long. We're not going to read all 58 verses, but this is where Paul explores foundationally what resurrection is. He explores foundationally like what it means for him as a Christian to participate in resurrection. Uh, and so he, I'm actually going to, spoiler alert, I'm actually going to read the end um, because we're not going to read all 58 verses, but Paul will finish uh, this by saying he, uh, about resurrection. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in God is not in vain. Okay, so, so here's, here's what Paul has just said. This, this entire passage that is summarizing resurrection, Paul has said, remain, this, this power in resurrection means you can remain steadfast. It also means that this power, you remain unmovable 
But ultimately, he says, whatever it is that you do, whatever it is that you commit to, will not be in vain. What Paul is saying is because of resurrection, because of the power of God, your attempts to live into resurrected reality with Jesus, a life with Jesus, a life of love, a life of reconciliation, a life of grace, a life of building this kind of kingdom that God is building, no matter how fruitless it may feel, no matter how meaningless it may feel, no matter how many times you may fail at this, it remains uh, impossible to be fruitless. All of your effort, all of your toil, regardless of how much it feels fruitless, meaningless, or pointless, because of the power of resurrection, God will redeem and restore and make impactful all of this. Regardless of how fickle and fragile and useless or amount of failure you may feel. And so what Paul is saying, what he's driving at here in this big passage on resurrection is because of the resurrection of Jesus, there is no part of your story, no part of your life, even your greatest failures that God will not waste, that God will not redeem, and will ultimately bring about your highest good and the highest good of the world around you. This is what resurrection means. It's this guarantee, it's this promise that goes beyond just saying, Jesus raised from the dead to prove he was God. It goes beyond just saying Jesus was raised from the dead because what other choice did he have? What it's saying is there's this power and resurrection that we participate in that cannot be hindered, that cannot be thwarted, that cannot be wasted, even sometimes by our own failures in that. And so when Paul finishes this chapter on resurrection, this is where he wants them to land. Dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. What Paul is striving at there is this life and resurrection that we participate in. This is something that cannot be stolen from you ever. Nor can you waste it ever. Nor can you fail enough to lose it ever. So therefore be immovable. Uh, he goes on to say uh, earlier uh, in the passage, but if this, uh, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Okay, so what Paul is saying here uh, is what we've been dry, what I've been trying to imply uh, through this whole sermon is that the resurrection of Jesus is united. Uh, you are united in that power. And so what Paul is saying is if Jesus hasn't been raised, the rest of us will not be raised. If Jesus has not been raised, then there is no hope. What happens to Jesus is now permanently tied with what happens to you. And so this, this idea of resurrection uh, is more, like I said, than just this idea um, that God, like Jesus came back to prove he was God. It's this uniting in the participation and the power of God. So that now what happens to Jesus happens to you. What happens to Jesus now happens to the rest of humanity. This is called, uh, in your New Testament, this is called resurrection. So many of us, when we think of our relationship with God, we see it as something that ends when we die, we go to heaven. 
right? Death has come. Now I'm, I'm dead, and I've, but I've, I'm covered. Uh, Jesus has forgiven me, so now I get to go to heaven. I get to go somewhere else. But your New Testament writers saw resurrection as actually what happens at the end of all things. It's this, and we talked about this in some of our previous sermons. You can go explore those. But it's this idea of heaven and earth joining together so that the reality that we are living in now, the physical life that you are living in now, is something that you continue to participate in all of eternity. But this time you do it uh, the way that Jesus does, resurrected in glory and perfect holy communion with God. And so when Paul is writing uh, that Christ has been raised from the dead, uh, how can you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. He goes on and says in verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Okay, so um, that was a mouthful. I get that. Hold on. We'll, we'll slow down and I'll unpack a little bit of this. Um, but what Paul is saying is that just through one man, Adam, sin has entered into the world. Now through one man, Christ has, has resurrection and salvation entered into the world. Just, because, just in the same way that we have been tied to the fate of Adam... Right? You, you were born sinful and broken. It just happened. Like, you didn't choose it. Right? Nobody's like, yeah, I just, I've, I've decided I was going to be a really broken person when I grew up. Like, our lives and the reality of our brokenness is something that was, if you want to call it thrust upon you, uh, it was something that has been out of your control ever since the day you were born. Right? Ever since the day you were born, I don't care who you are and whether, whatever like, drives you inwardly, whether it's fear or shame or guilt, from the day you were born, you have been trying to live a life adjusting to your imperfections, your brokenness, your selfishness, the way you're wired, like the way that you are hurtful, the way that you're self-destructive. You have been from the very beginning trying to live and reconcile and work through a life like this. You'll do it in your marriages. You do it in your relationships. Like every single one of us has tried to work through and continuously works through the brokenness that we were born with. This is what we, when, when Paul says this is Adam, this is what he's meaning. Meaning this, there's parts of you out of your control that hold you hostage, that oppress you. Right, we've talked about this before, but the Bible, your New Testament, views sin relationally. Meaning sin isn't just like this bad thing that I do. It's not like I'm like, I don't know, I'm feeling really naughty today, and I don't have the discipline to like, so I'm going to go here and not here. What, what your Bible says about sin is that it's deeply wired inside of you, and it destroys and it disrupts your communion with God, your communion with yourself, and your communion with your neighbor. 
There's something deeply hardwired inside of us that's broken. And you and I and every other person in the world has been trying to make adjustments for that, trying to cope with that, trying to heal with that from the day they were born. That's why we have therapists, right? Like that, that, that's what this, this united to Adamness that Paul's talking about is. But then Paul goes on to say, now we have been united with Christ and will be made alive. Okay, so, so this challenges a little bit of, of some of this notion that God just, like I said earlier, forgives me of my sins. Like he just tolerates me for the wrong things I do or the bad things I do. What Paul is saying is because of this power in the resurrected Jesus, I'm now participating in a righteousness and in a holy communion uh, that is not my own. There is something that is healing me from the inside, making me whole from the inside, restoring me from the inside that I cannot control, that is out of my control, that is bigger than me, and that is secured through Christ for me. And so I know for some of us, this challenges some of this idea, or it should at least challenge some of this idea that we can run God off. Right? This should challenge some of this idea that God is not going to accept all of us. This should challenge for some of us this idea that God doesn't delight in us, that he doesn't long to be with us, that he cares for us. Because what Paul is saying is, and you could no more change the brokenness you live with, then you can change the righteousness that has been given to you in Christ. The love that God has shown to you in Christ. So this challenges the ways that we feel like God's done with us, that God's pushed us away, that God tolerates us, that God sees us but doesn't accept all of us. Because this power of resurrection means that God has fully and completely and unconditionally loved us and accepted us through the power of resurrection in Jesus. There's no amount of sin, there's no amount of brokenness, there's no amount of your own shame or guilt or fear or inadequacies or failures that can change that. That can rip that from you. And so when Paul finishes this passage by saying be strong and immovable, what he's reminding them of is this gift that you've been given and the power of the resurrected Jesus cannot be stripped away from you. It cannot be torn away from you, but neither that nor can it be, nor can you push it away. Any more than you could grow up perfect you have not the power to grow up perfect any more than you have the power to push away the, the love of God shown to you through Christ. And it's a truth that you'll spend your entire life wrestling with and going to God with and then losing sight of and then trying to regain. But what Paul wants them to realize is at the end of the day, this truth, this power means that you are immovable that even your greatest failures, your greatest senses of shame, the places that you hide from others and you think you hide from God, even these are not enough to withhold or repel the love that he has for you. 
he says here at the end, God the Father, after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Okay, so that's, those are some big church words. What Paul is saying here is what I've been trying to say uh, through this sermon is that these dominion, these authorities, and these power, Paul views as the things that oppress and control and dominate humanity. Their addictions, their unjust systems, their dysfunctional families, the things that have kind of guided and, and, and moved human, us, you and me, through life. These are the dominions and power. Paul is saying, because of resurrection, those two are going to be toppled. The broken patterns that you've, your life you are subjected to are going to be toppled. The brokenness that you can't escape that seems to follow you around everywhere, your own secret addictions that follow you is going to be toppled. And this last enemy to be toppled is death. So uh, I want to um, use what Paul's saying here to change just our perspective just a little bit. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Verse 26. This is actually God's ultimate enemy. It's not sin. It's not wicked people. Okay, I want us to really, like, really listen carefully to what Paul is saying. It's death. Sin is an enemy of God. I'm not saying that. Satan is an enemy of God. I'm not saying that either. Like, please don't hear me again say what I'm not saying, but what I am trying to do is put some of what Paul is saying uh, and to challenge some of our perspectives. Because for many of us, we see our sin and our failures and our shortcomings as God's, like, primary enemy in his life. And it, it, right? But the, when we do that, as long as we continue to do that, that means that when we sin and when we fall short and when we don't live up to our own standards, we will see ourselves as failing God's primary purpose for us. If we make our sinful wickedness like the primary enemy of God, then when we fall short, which we inevitably do, we see ourselves as failing the primary purpose of God's life, which was to make us good. But the primary purpose of which God is doing all of this is to do away with death through the power of resurrection. Okay, so even in your, in your Old Testament, right, when we, we talk about sin entering the world for the first time, Right, everybody vaguely knows that story. Adam and Eve in the garden, and the serpent comes to them. But if you read all of Genesis, uh, the serpent actually doesn't get a whole lot of screen time. Like he's there for a couple of verses. Satan's there for a couple of verses, then he's gone. Uh, and so, if you, if, you, if you were a Netflix series, like he's he's a villain, but he's kind of one that comes in for a couple of episodes and then is gone for the rest of the season. Like, maybe he kind of, like, messes things up, but what you see really happening in Genesis is death enters into the world. When, when they eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, God tells Adam and Eve, if you eat of this tree, you will surely, the Hebrew literally translates it, die, die. You will die dead. And after they eat of the tree, what happens? The very next passage, Genesis 4, Cain kills Abel. And then in Genesis 5 and 6, you're going to have some boring genealogies before you get to Noah. And there's going to be all these passages. So-and-so 
lived so many years and then they died and then they had a son and or a daughter and so and so lived so many years and then they died and then so and so lived so many years and then they died like read it in your old testament uh it's a very like it's part we skip but your old testament writer is saying something there's an enemy in the scene now humanity has now a new enemy and it is death death has come and no matter who you are you're subjected to it and so when Paul says the last enemy to be put under, uh, under the feet of God is death, what he is saying is God, like the thing in your life that you have had no control over, which is death, right? It is the like great human uh, like uh, disempowering agent. No matter how much therapy you have in your life, no matter how much self-improvement books you read, no matter how just strong-willed or disciplined you are, at the end of your life, you will die. Like it is the thing that we do not have any control over. And what, Jesus, what Paul is saying here is the things in your life that you don't have control over that have oppressed you, these powers, these dominions, and ultimately death, God has come to liberate you from, to do away with you, to do away with for you, to save you, to liberate you, to give you life. This provides some real hope for us. Because as we navigate our life, and as we feel overwhelmed by all the things that are out of our control, out of our power, all the things that we've been subjected to, what we know is that any of those things and all of those things compared to death have, like in the end, death has the ultimate power over us so all of those other things that we feel subjected to, we feel out of control of, if God could take and defeat the one thing that we have the least and no control over death, how much more so can he take these other things and remove their power over you? The ways that we feel defeated by them. Right, the, this is the same passage where Paul will say this famous line of, oh, death, where is your sting? If the sting of death is being removed, how much more so will the sting of all your failures and all the things out of your control and all the ways that you feel defeated also be removed? So be strong and immovable, my dear brothers and sisters, is what Paul says. When we think of resurrection, last piece about this, this passage that I want us to grab um, of when I ask, like, why did resurrection happen? Why does resurrection matter? Well, one of the things I, I want to point out is um, it, it, it puts back into perspective, the, like, the um, significance or the importance of life. Okay, so when Jesus was raised with a physical body, that physical body mattered. Right? Jesus was raised with real, like, uh, blood back in his veins, like, real skin on his uh, body. Like, he's raised with a physical body. This means that the physical world around us and our physical lives matter. What it begins to do is it begins to paint this continuous picture of not the where you die and go to heaven someday, but this power of resurrected life you begin to participate in now. You begin to participate in it now as we wait for its final culmination at the end of all things. 
as we wait for the final culmination when Jesus comes and restores all things, because of resurrection, we begin to participate in this life now. This means that the resurrected life that God has called you to, this power that is available to you now, starts now when you are in Jesus. Starts now when you are in Christ. It's not something you wait for when you die. It is something that you begin to participate eagerly in now. It is something that begins to liberate you even now. It is something that begins to forgive you even now. It is something that begins to restore you even now. So one of the things that we will wrestle with, though, uh, with this idea of resurrected life, uh, is that we'll also be waiting for its final culmination or its final completion. This is hard uh, for us because for many of us as Christians, uh, particularly in America, we, we live with a pretty sensationalized version of Christianity that sort of promises that God's going to come and deliver us now. Um, there, are, there are some worship songs that, that float around that drive me crazy, um, but there's, there's sort of these promises of like when we see God's spirit, we're going to see him starting to heal now. We're going to see marriages put back together now. We're going to see addictions go away now, and that's true. I'm not saying that that's necessarily not true, but there's also a big part of our life that waits for the culmination of those things, that waits for the final healing of those things. And so for many of us, we're used to a, a Christianity that sort of promises the end result now. And this can create frustration and tension with us when we continue to wrestle, when our marriages don't get better, when our addictions keep, crappy, creep, keep creeping back up, when we see injustice that keeps coming over and over and over again. And so one of the realities of resurrection uh, and resurrected life that I want to just encourage us with this morning is that at the end of the day, there's going to be parts of this that we long to see completed, that we long to see fulfilled, that we long to see um, happen. And that's not necessarily a sign. This is where I want to encourage you, because this is a conversation I have pretty regularly with people, is that is not necessarily a sign that your faith is weak, or that God is not moving, or that he does not care, or that he does not love you. Some of these incomplete spaces in our lives that we experience are the part of us that has started to taste resurrection, started to see some of what's available, but haven't seen its full culmination when Jesus returns. And so we'll feel some tension there. And so some of, that, some of those times that we ask God that question, God, where are you? Do you love me? Do you care? Do you see? Some of those questions, I think, are actually not a sign that your faith is weak or that God doesn't love you or that he doesn't care. I think some of that tension that we feel in our hearts is a sign that we've tasted resurrection. And we're longing for more of it. And so some of that tension that you feel, I want to encourage you this morning, is actually could be an indication that your faith is healthy. It could actually be an indication that God is moving because you've tasted and seen and you know there's still something that's incomplete. There's still something I'm longing for. There's still some freedom I haven't tasted. This, I think, can also be a sign that the Spirit is working in our hearts and working in our souls, like preparing us to long for the thing that he's bringing about when Jesus returns. And so while we participate in it now, there's a big portion of our faith that is not yet realized, and we're going to find real tension with that. 
we're going to find real longing in that space. We're going to find real, uh, even emptiness sometimes. And in that space, we may find ourselves longing, Jesus, why don't you come back sooner? Why is this happening? Why is this, where are you in that? And some of that that we experience, I want to encourage us by saying that that could be a sign, that could be that space where your spirit has already tasted and seen resurrection and the power available to you, and you're still waiting. You're still longing. And so this is why Paul says, be strong and immovable. The power that's been given to you cannot be stolen from you, it can't be stripped from you, and you can't push it away. So when you labor and when you toil, when you strive to love the way that God called you to love, as imperfect as that might be, when you strive to be reconciliatory in the ways that you can, as imperfect as that might be, when you strive to be grace in the world around you, what Paul is saying, when he says, none of this will be in vain, what he's trying to do is help us live in this middle space. Yes, you're not going to do it perfectly, but yes, it can't the end game can't be stolen from you. Yes, you're not going to raise your kids perfectly. You're not going to run your marriage perfectly. You're not going to be perfect, but ultimately the joy and the hope and the love that is available you, to you through resurrection cannot be stolen from you. So be strong and immovable. Don't quit. Keep going. Don't stop. What Paul is saying is no matter how much you fail, the thing holding you up can't fail ultimately. And because of that, you'll never be knocked over completely. You'll never be completely defeated. Paul will express this. We've been, we've been, we've been pushed to the ends of our limits, Paul will say in Corinthians, but we're still here been knocked down but not destroyed because there's a reality resurrection that's holding me up that I'm united to in Jesus and so as we attempt to love as imperfect as we are be strong and immovable as we wrestle with our addictions be strong and immovable as difficult as sobriety may feel at times as we struggle through sexual faithfulness or loyalty, or peace, or being gentle, or loving, as we struggle in our marriages, as we struggle in our relationships. What Paul is saying is, when you continue to pursue resurrection in Jesus, this love and joy and peace that's being offered to you, be strong and immovable because your failures, it can't be stripped from you. You can't lose it completely. This is the hope of resurrection. Let me pray for us, and we'll finish for today. Well, Father, um, we need you. We need your power. We need your grace. Father, we need resurrection. So, Father, would you help us? Would you give us real resurrection? Would you give us real power in resurrection? 
Father, as we struggle through our lives, as we live imperfectly, as we labor and toil, Father, would you protect our hearts from being ultimately discouraged and ultimately defeated by knowing that the power of resurrection is available to us, the power of resurrection in your Son is available to us. We need this, Father, for all the ways in which we feel so movable, so tossed to and fro. Would you help us, God? Would you anchor us in the power of resurrection? Would you help us to see that death and the sting of death is being stolen from us, it's being taken away from us, so how much more are the things that we have more control over in our lives than death, but still feel defeated by, how much more so will those things lose their power in our life as well? Jesus, we need you. We long for you. Would you help us? Pray all these things in your name. Amen.